Welcome to the party, pals. I'm Phil Gawthorne, action movie screenwriter. And I'm Liam Billingham, movie podcaster. And together we host Die Hard on a Blank, a podcast from Sugar23 that explores the influence of Die Hard on action cinema. In each episode, we'll talk about one major action movie that was released after Die Hard. Now, some of these movies take place on a bus. On a boat. Or even a roadhouse. Uh, sure. The point is, these are action movies that couldn't exist without Die Hard, and its DNA is everywhere. Die Hard on a Blank is a celebration of action movies and a deep dive into the ways that Die Hard shaped the action genre. So if you're a casual fan or an action movie Die Hard. Ooh, very nice. Then Die Hard on a Blank is for you. Yes, you personally. Our first two episodes, which are all about the original 1988 masterpiece Die Hard, drop December 21st, because Die Hard is a Christmas movie, wherever you get your podcasts. Phil, do the line. Now we have a podcast. (laughs) Ho, ho, ho. Hey, everybody, it's Liam. So back in July, I had coffee with Bilga Abiri. It was the first time that we met in person, despite being Twitter buddies and podcasting together before. Bilga was about to see Oppenheimer again, and the film hadn't even come out yet. He was seeing it because he's been writing about it all summer and doing amazing work on Vulture. And I was so excited to see it, and we spent some of our time chatting about a movie that we both love, Tenet. Christopher Nolan's pandemic released time travel, spy, hard sci-fi, dudes rock, but they're also in love with each other action movie that because of the pandemic, I feel like sometimes doesn't feel like it actually exists. I love Tenet. I watch it all the time. Like I said, Bilga's a fan too. And so we decided that once I'd seen Oppenheimer, which I've now seen twice, and I'm going back for a third time, as I often do with Nolan movies, we wanted to record an episode where we talk about Tenet, about Oppenheimer, how they relate to each other, because they certainly do, and lots of other stuff. And so that's what you're about to hear. Bilga is a great critic and a wonderful podcast guest, but but mostly just a person that I really enjoy talking to. And I hope you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation. It's unique. The scientists who built it took her own life so she couldn't be forced to make another. A scientist in the future? Generations from now. Why does she have to kill herself? You're familiar with the Manhattan Project? As they approached the first atomic test, Oppenheimer became concerned that the detonation might produce a chain reaction. And cutting the world. They went ahead anyway and got lucky. Think of our scientist as her generation's Oppenheimer. She devises a method for inverting the world, becomes convinced that by destroying us, they're destroying themselves. The grandfather paradox. But unlike Oppenheimer, she rebels, splitting the algorithm into nine sections and hiding them the best place she can think of. The past, here, now. Where did you first see Tenant? Because it came out during the COVID-19 pandemic. I feel like not at a great point in the pandemic, like pre-vaccine. I saw it uh, when it, well, remember, when it finally opened, it opened internationally. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then then it started to open in the U.S. Theaters in New York were still closed at the time, Um, but theaters in New Jersey were open. And there was, you know, you had the ability to, like, rent out a theater. So... 
a friend of mine uh, who was also a big fan of Christopher Nolan's films, uh, we rented a theater in New Jersey and drove two hours uh, to New Jersey to this, you know, empty multiplex in New Jersey uh, to watch it. We go into the theater. Theater is empty. I mean, it's a giant multiplex. I actually even have a picture of like the parking lot. It's like our car. I remember this picture because you were the first person. I remember remember this now. You were the first person to see it. And you posted it. Yeah, I posted it. And it was like, there was, I mean, it's a huge empty multiplex. We're the only people there. It's an early, you know, it's like a 1 p.m. screening or something like that. I mean, we, you know, we set our time. Uh, were there people selling like popcorn? Was, was it or was it yeah, just? Yeah, there was. You could you could buy popcorn. There was like rows of popcorn uh, and soda. In fact, um, you know, uh, I, it was actually I, I went with my friend Brandon and his wife Sharon. So there were three of us, uh, and and I believe they got popcorn. I did not, but it was so funny because and then we we're in this theater, this enormous theater, and we're like all <laughs> different corners of the theater. You're like you're you're like as far away as you could be without right, like right. yeah. And you got yeah. the masks on and and. You know, um, which was, you know, which was probably the, the right, you know, it's, that was probably the right thing to do. But I think it became clear to me uh, over the, you know, ensuing year or so, once I did start going to movie theaters on a regular basis, is that even though we looked at movie theaters early on as being just like uh, the worst places you could be, uh, during a mm. pandemic uh, of this sort, movie theaters actually were a lot safer than we thought they were, in part because they're very big spaces and they're historically very well-ventilated spaces, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, air conditioning in movie theaters has been a thing since, like, you know, the 1910s or something. Um, it's part of the reason people go to movies. Part of the reason people go to movies. Uh, and, and I remember, oh, yeah, and I remember, especially, like, in other countries, I mean, you know, I, I grew up in Turkey, and, and I remember all my friends in Turkey would always talk about how in the summer... You just go to the movies because that's like the only place, those were the only places that actually had air conditioning um, or like good air conditioning. And, um, but uh, the other thing I keep thinking about is, um, you know, movie theaters. And I actually wrote a piece about this a little bit around, around that time, but movie theaters have always been seen as like vectors of infection uh, and vectors mm. of disease. Like it was actually a thing. And, and a lot of this dates back to the early days of like the Nickelodeons and stuff like that when um, conservative moralists and people like that actually tried to get movie theaters closed down because uh, there, you know, there were a lot of immigrants going to movie theaters. A, a lot of them were owned by Jews. Like these were like the, the pe- like people that they thought were, you know, quote unquote, dirty. So like you went to the theater, you, oh no, you might catch a disease. Like it, it was like immigrant panic. Yeah, stuff like there was. There's something. always been a history of that sort of thing with movie theaters, mm. um, and uh, you know. But obviously, you want to be safe, and during you know during an actual pandemic. Um, but like once once I got vaccinated, I remember I just went started going to the theaters, and I, I would go. I mean, once twice a day for years. I did this um, for a couple of years. I was just going constantly, always wearing my mask. Never got never. You were making up for lost time. Making up for lost time, but also like this weird, and there's no way like I could have made that big a difference, but there's like another part of me. It's like, oh, I got to like help save the theater. <laughs> so I'm just like going. I'm not even. <laughs> I understand yeah. that. Meant, are you kidding? I get oh, that. Yeah. You know, but it's like, like my ticket isn't going to actually do anything. But, you know, like, it, I mean, in New York, a lot of these theaters, especially the rep houses, you know, for people who are critics and 
um, people like me, they're often willing to, you know, comp you seats or give you a free pass and things like that. But I, for a couple of years, I didn't use any of those because I was like, I'm going to pay my ticket. And I'm going to go in there. I'm yeah, no, red, no, what's it yeah. called? Um, movie pass. For yeah, you. no movie pass for me. Anyway, um, but uh, back to Ted. <laughs> so what do you think? What, what, so you're sitting in the movie theater. You're like, I think probably like me, we were eagerly anticipating this movie. I was pretty bummed out that like we weren't going to get the traditional July release yeah. IMAX thing. So what was your, how'd you feel when it ended or, or while you were watching it? When I when I saw it, I, I enjoyed it a lot. I mean, I enjoyed it for all the kind of mundane isn't the word, but mundane reasons why one might just enjoy a movie like that. Like you love the music, you love the cinematography, you love kind of the way he cuts and things like that. I mean, you know, with filmmakers, I really love. I, I realize with a lot of them, eventually, you know. It's it's their sensibility that that you're responding to. So even when they make a film that's not necessarily perfect in every regard, there's a part of you that just still responds to it because you know mm-hmm. you, you recognize their style, you recognize their cadence, you recognize the way they like to tell stories, or the way they like to frame shots, or the way they like to cut scenes and things like that. Um, and uh, you know it was it was a Nolan film, so in that sense, I just enjoyed it tremendously. Now there were I had a million questions about what the hell was happening in the movie, um, <laughs> but I was never you know I mean there's that line they say early on it's a kind of a cliche, but you know you, you don't have to think about don't think about it, try to feel it right, right? Don't try to understand don't it. Don't try to understand it. Um, and it is kind of like that, right? I mean he he knows how to. He knows how to tell a story, and he knows how to focus your attention on the things that he needs you to understand in order to be able to sort of mm-hmm. watch the next scene. Now, Tenet, I think, of all his films, is probably the one that's the furthest ahead of its audience in certain ways. Uh, so you're constantly playing catch-up, but it's all there. Uh, so I, I I enjoyed the hell out of the movie, and then on the drive back, we just had, like, we were just talking about, like, well, wait, what was the thing with the thing? And then what was happening mm-hmm. in that scene? Well, and how, but if they do this, then how will they do that? Like, it's just, it's those things. Um, but then, uh, you know, and, and then of course, especially with Nolan, I mean, I do like to watch his movies again, both to appreciate. The they, they warrant they it. They warrant it. I want to appreciate the craft, but obviously the craft, but there's obviously so much in there um, that, that, you know, I want to revisit and sort of think over. Um, and it was like, well, I'm not going to rent a theater again. You know, like I kind of blew my, <laughs> that can't have been my, cheap. Yeah. I kind of blew the wallet on this and I, I'm not going to rent a theater again. So, uh, and I really wanted to see it again, but you know, it took such a long time for, uh, I mean, it was record time historically, but it was a long time before vaccines were available. And by that point, the film had kind of finished its run, uh, but I wanted to do it again, and I wasn't able to. I did, you know, at some point, I I, I did, you know, torrent a, a crappy cam rip of the movie <gasps> uh, because I just wanted to see it again, you know. And it was it was yeah. no fun watching it in that format. But I did like watch it at least once, like that. So I saw it at a. I had a. I got lucky because I saw it at a drive-in in September of 2020. 
Uh, I went with a buddy who was in a different car who's going to be on the second episode of the show because it was the second time we ever hung out in real life. That's a whole story. Um, And then about three weeks after my second vaccine, the new Beverly, God bless it, showed it in 35 millimeter. And I had never... I was so excited because I was like, this movie doesn't exist. Like, I can't go and re-see it because often, as you said, with Nolan films, I go twice within a week of release i'm like okay i get the first screening i let it wash over me it's all i think about which is the case with oppenheimer which i'm sure we'll we'll talk about and then i go back and i have my second experience and that's often then i then i feel like the movie really exists but with this one it took up you know almost a year uh, september to june before i saw it again. wow yeah and then that second time i was tenant yeah i was like this movie rules when did you get tenant pilled I mean, I'd, I'd like to think I was tenant-pilled from that very first viewing, but but I think it was actually when I rewatched it in, you know, crappy, you know, cam-rip version where I was watching it. One, I was longing for a, a clear, nice, you know, um, mm-hmm. version of it, which ironically enough makes you appreciate uh, the visual qualities of the, and the you know sonic qualities of the film better when you see a really bad version of it. You're like, this movie actually looks great, and 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 now mm-hmm. now that I see it look terrible, I can appreciate how good it looks. Um, but uh, you know, and the when the Blu-ray came out or the 4K, I got that and uh, watched that. I have seen it theatrically uh, several times. Um, Where and when? They've, uh, People will have like random screenings of it. The Nighthawk Cinema had a screening of it here in New York. Um, um, Museum of the Moving Image had a screening of it. Um, both in both cases, it, well, Museum of the Moving Image I think showed it in seventy millimeter, and um, Nighthawk Cinema showed it in thirty-five millimeter. And I want to say I maybe saw it one other time theatrically, although I, I might, I, I might not have. Um, but uh, and in both cases, you know place was packed it was rowdy it was people who'd seen the movie before it was it was like you know the the people of tenet (laughs) you know yeah yeah the republic of tenet there there are people who will watch tenet if you show it and the thing that's i am one of those people I I, i missed it it was here when we were in new york uh, American Cinematheque did a 70 millimeter screening as part of their similar mm-hmm. to Momi's 70 millimeter screening of Tenet. And I was like, oh man, like, come on. I can't, like I was in New York. I was like, I, I was so bummed out because I've never seen it in that format. But I am absolutely a like, anytime this shows on the big screen because we missed our our window we, with it we the first our window time. And we missed, we missed IMAX. I mean, the thing we right. have, to, the thing I keep reminding myself is, oh, right, like, I was supposed to see this in IMAX. Like, I still haven't seen it in IMAX, and I don't know if I ever will. I mean, you know, those IMAX 70 millimeter prints of it must still be sitting around kind of pristine because a lot of those theaters were not open when when, when Tenet uh, came out. Uh, So, and they, I mean, those prints cost a lot of money. They're like $50,000 each or something like that. so uh, yeah, I was talking to someone recently that something that large to strike something that large of a print is like the budget of a micro budget. Oh feature. yeah, it's a lot of money. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I think Nolan himself told me that the prints of Oppenheimer were like fifty thousand dollars each. Um, the, the, I'm, I'm shocked it was that little. Yeah, I was actually later on I was thinking, well, not that much <laughs> for a budget of this kind of. A, maybe maybe <laughs> right. he said one hundred fifty thousand. I don't know, but um, still, 
I mean, you know, it, it costs more than a DCP, obviously. Um, anyway, I'm hoping I'm hoping somebody has the they'd make money off it. Really, they really would. Well, the hidden agenda, I'm not joking, of this little series of the podcast is to get enough people listen to like get Warner Brothers attention to do because we're in this summer of Oppenheimer moment. And what better time to re-release an IMAX epic than from the director of Oppenheimer, even though it's a different studio. Like, I, I want this to usher in an age where we're looking back and going, and these movies, as you've said and written about, have something in common. Oh, yeah. Like, this is... I was thinking earlier that, like, everyone's calling this the suburb of Barbenheimer, but for the people of Tenet, it's kind of... I don't know. For me, it's like the season of Tenetheimer. Like, when Oppenheimer ended, I went opening on in 70. I was like, I got to go home and watch Tenet. I didn't. I waited a whole week to see Oppenheimer again. Mm-hmm. And knowing... I Because I just wanted to live in that that zone a little mm-hmm. bit. I, I think you probably appreciate, like, Nolan movies get their tentacles in yeah. you, and they don't let go. And you just think about it. So I wanted to keep doing that. And then I watched Tenet to anticipation of this, but I've watched it twice since seeing Oppenheimer. And I'm curious, like, what do you think these two have in common? Oh, uh, they have a ton in common. I mean, I think that two things. One, I actually asked Nolan about this. Yeah. Uh, I talked to him about Tenet a little bit. Uh, and he said that in many ways, Tenet was his kind of science fiction fantasy approach to the idea of whether it's possible to put the toothpaste back in the bottle in terms of uh, nuclear weapons and things like that. So that stuff was on his mind. Now, he wasn't thinking about making an Oppenheimer movie at the time. He, he, you know, the Oppenheimer idea comes to him afterwards, even though there is that line, that dialogue exchange about Oppenheimer. I guess what, what happens is after they wrap Tenet, Robert Pattinson gives Christopher Nolan uh, a, a, a collection of Oppenheimer essays. And um, and then somewhere along the way, uh, one of the producers of Oppenheimer gives him the book. Uh, and sort of then he reads the book and, you know, the, the American Prometheus. Um, and, and that's when he decides to make the movie. So it's just like the idea is in his mind, but but he hasn't come to Oppenheimer specifically yet. Uh, but the other thing I wanted to say was, and this is true of a lot of Nolan films, but it's particularly true of Tenet. He takes the ideas in these movies very seriously. You know, mm-hmm. People think of Nolan as kind of humorless as a filmmaker. I think that's totally, totally not true. I actually think there's tons of humor in the in the films, and I, especially in this. Oh one. yeah, and I can I can I mean there's so many great lines. I mean he's he's very good with sort of dialogue zingers and things like that. Um, but the reason why I think people sort of come away with the impression that he might be humorless is because he takes the sort of the threats in the films so seriously. That mm-hmm. when the movie's over, you don't walk out and you're like, boy, that was so much fun. Like, it, there's no, like, eating shawarma moment at the end of these movies. Like, they kind of <laughs> leave leave you with the impression that things are not okay. Um, right. I, I think that's true of the Batman movies. Um, I mean, his his fears are very much in those films, and they really speak to their moments. And I think he does that yeah. consciously. 
Um, it's very much the case with Inception. Uh, I mean, Jesus Christ, Interstellar, like what a sad movie, you know? Like a really sad movie. I mean, a really sad movie. Like it, it, it's hard to shake how sad that movie is. Um, I mean, Dunkirk, <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah. talk, you know, I mean, he made a film about one of the, you know, the great defeats of, of, of World War II. Uh, and yet manages to make it the most hopeful yeah. movie he's ever made it is, in some it ways. It is, definitely. Well, that's the irony of, 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 of Nolan, which is he finds the thing that's, that's really terrifying and finds hope in it. And then he finds things that actually almost give you hope and then finds the terror in them. Right. Um, but, uh, but I think the thing about Tenet is that's one of those films where it's so clear that he is tormented by nuclear reality, the power that we have to destroy ourselves, but also by things like climate change. You know, it's, it's mm-hmm. I mean, it, the, Tenet is a, is a film made by someone in the middle of, I think, like an apocalyptic spiral <laughs> right mm-hmm. and and i mean in that sense also how perfect a movie for the the year of covid when you think about it you know it felt very resonant with the masks yeah, with the, and like everything about it felt like it was made for that they moment. use like you know all of nolan's films there's some key sound effect from the movie that winds up uh becoming part of the score <laughs> and in Tenet, it's the heavy breathing <laughs> the, the heavy breathing through the mask and i'm just like Jesus Christ, like... And the wheezing. wheezing. <gasps> like that, I can't even describe yeah. it, but that sounds that you hear occasionally, which is so upsetting, yeah. like viscerally upsetting yeah. in the year of t- late 2020. And fucking Ludwig Göransson like makes that like a motif in the score. Um, so, so yeah, there's, there's all that stuff. And, and I think that's why in some ways Tenet, I think, feels like a companion piece to Oppenheimer. Um, because, I mean, Tenet, feels like a movie made by someone who is just like, you know, absolutely riddled with anxieties about our world and about Mm -hmm. what we can do to save, uh, what we can do to save it and and what others might try to do to save it. Like the idea, you know, you can go back in time to sort of put the toothpaste back in the bottle, but then, (laughs) but so can future generations, they can go back in time to fucking destroy you so that you don't destroy them, you know? Um, this is why I think it improves on viewings yeah. because you become more, it's one of those, you know, it's a cliche, but it's one of those movies that teaches you how to watch mm-hmm. it. And it's more true of this than almost anything else. Like you learn more about like watching it last night. I sort of spent more time thinking about the turnstiles and how you see the other version of yourself passing mm-hmm. by as it happens and how like that clarifies a lot in the final battle sequence when you see people moving in and out and, and the forward momentum and the backward momentum. And, and and to the movie's credit, the action is so crisp that sometimes you don't even notice mm-hmm. that things are happening forward and backward yeah. at the same time. It teaches you how to watch it. Just the anxiety of, of how people spend their time and what they do with it and regret. Like, I think that that's a big theme. Even as a as a person, you can feel him probing and searching for what am I doing in this moment what how's that going to affect the future and the sort of the ultimate mind fuck of the future affects the past which is such a resonant idea in Oppenheimer like he's really figured out structurally in these last two movies how to present this really bleak picture of like we don't know what the future has in store for us and the idea of the future coming back for revenge mm-hmm. which is kind of what that final scene in Oppenheimer is about like I didn't destroy the world but 
did we destroy the world? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in Oppenheimer, that final scene is very much about his, both the idea that we might have destroyed the world, but also the fact that he can't help but see the world being destroyed because of the way that he has always visualized or has tried to visualize the quantum world and the quantum universe and kind of the way that he sees, and I think this is true of a lot of scientists and a lot of physicists, but like, you know, you know, they don't necessarily see the world the way we do. They they see all the kind of, you know, particles and matter and all the things pushing against each other. You know, there's that sort of weird sense. It's something that actually, um, when I interviewed Benny Safdie about it, uh, about the film, that he said that, you know, t- you know, there was there was a day when they had a bunch of real physicists on set, and, you know, to work as extras, and he had to go and talk to them because he had he had wanted to be a physicist as a young man and almost became a nuclear physicist, but uh, or almost went to school for it. So he he knew a lot about the stuff. I mean, yeah, I thought that detail was so amazing yeah, in your right. piece. Like, oh, I just happened to almost be. A I physicist, know it's, it's crazy. I'm just one of the crowning filmmakers <laughs> of the, of the modern and it's era. It's crazy that Nolan. Doesn't seem like Nolan actually knew this. They just happened, you know, like he was just offering him, you know, the part, but didn't realize that, that yeah. uh, the guy. Well, I love these stories about them, and I don't know if they're true or not, that like he cast um, the British, uh, uh, Dunkirk, Harry Styles. The fact that he apparently cast Harry Styles and Dunkirk without knowing Harry Styles was Harry Styles. <laughs> like, I just find that. Hard it to believe with chi- with him having yeah, children. It could happen. I don't know, but but it is. Um, but the thing that Benny Safdie said was, you know, I, I went to these physicists and and asked them like, how 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 do you you know go through the life seeing the world this way? And and their response was, well, you know, in our view, you're the one that's like deluded. <laughs> like we, we're wondering how you can go through life, you know, seeing the world this way. You know, um, so. But the idea that the film presents, I think, is of Oppenheimer as someone who kind of sees these things and he sees them as kind of, he sees them almost as like chain reactions. Like he sees sort of what's next. And these chain reactions, you know, if you think about scientific progress and scientific discovery and the idea of scientific discovery, it's just basically, you know, there's, you don't, you never stop discovering. You're always pushing, right? You're always pushing for, for the for the next thing. There's no point at which physics stops, right? There's no point at which physicists mm-hmm. are going to be like, all right, we, we're, we're good. good. <laughs> figured it out. Call, it's all call it a out. day, you know, <laughs> rat party, you know. Um, so it's, I guess that would be if they solve climate change. Then we'd yeah. be like, okay, let's yeah. take a month let's off. Let's take a month off. Like Everybody that. stop experimenting. Um, yeah, no more experiments. Right. So so that's kind of, you know, that's that's the fascinating thing because – they talk about this idea of compartmentalization in the film. And, you know, there is the compartmentalization of all these scientists kind of working together, but also in kind of their own silos during the Manhattan Project. But then there's also this this compartmentalization of once they're done, once they've created the atom bomb, they are sidelined. It is not an issue Mm -hmm. for the scientists anymore. Now it's like the generals and the politicians are going to figure out what to do with this thing. Of course, they're going to drop the bomb and kill hundreds of thousands of people. Um, But then there is... Then there's this other thing, which is this work is going to continue and they're going to build hydrogen bombs and they're going to build bigger bombs and they're going to build stronger bombs and they're going to build, you know, I mean, it's just, it's, there's no end to it. Right. So, so Oppenheimer sort of sees the future in that sense in that, 
you know, he realizes he started something. And maybe he didn't start. Maybe he was just a key figure along the way. But he is the father of the atom bomb. And the fact is, the atom bomb's going to have its own kids, (laughs) you know, like... um, so mm-hmm. it's just it's going to just keep going and going and going and he is the person at least in his mind responsible for it. Um and that's that's well, that tenet connection I think. I think the other thing that's interesting in what you're saying is that there's a weird way to think about tenet as a tenet to, as a sequel to Oppenheimer mm-hmm. but it was made first in the sense that like you know Oppenheimer ends with this idea that like essentially implying the nuclear arms race and and the fact that we've you know created like a military industrial complex Mm -hmm. right and one of the things that's so cool about tenant and i think only reveals itself really upon multiple rewatches is you're spending so much time being like wait what is this organization what is going on with this organization you never in a classic nolan bit he never walks into like a building where people are going about their business (laughs) in terms of the organization because in the timeline the organization doesn't exist But the fact that by the end of the movie, there's triple crosses and he can't trust Priya and he has to kill her because she's lied to him. And the whole idea of like knowledge divided, like you can never really know what this is. We have to give information to the people who need it. And that's how we maintain order and power. And it and it makes it film noirish, but it also feels a little bit like a reflection of what was really going on when they built that bomb. It's like, you know... Oppenheimer is obsessed with building the bomb and he's working in the laboratory, but the military has its own agenda. And there's that amazing scene where they build the bomb and they're all celebrating. And then you watch the the bomb pull away mm. and Sat Benny Safdie and him are on opposite ends of the street. And you're like, you are but a piece of a much larger complicated puzzle that is both of that moment, but is going to matter in the future. Yeah. And, 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 in a crazy way. And Tenet has that dialogue about, you know, it, it has the dialogue about Oppenheimer, obviously, uh, but then also talks about the woman who invented or created the algorithm. And she, they say mm-hmm. she was her generation's Oppenheimer and she killed herself, right? And that's, that's the thing that uh, in many ways Tenet retroactively is basically saying the only way maybe this could this issue thing could have been solved would be if everybody on the Manhattan Project just killed themselves after you know it's not nobody says that in, in Oppenheimer obviously but but really I mean there is this kind of like we have this knowledge we have this technology what the hell do we do with it um, but yeah I mean it's it's such a you know you can you can go down so many rabbit holes thinking about about these things and and you can do it. Without having to see Oppenheimer, like you can do it just by mm-hmm. looking at Tenet and at everything that's in Tenet. Because even you know Kenneth Branagh's character, um, oh, the best. He's so he's good. So every good. time I watch it, he gets better. He gets better. He gets better every time. When I first saw it, I was like, "Oh, it's a little, it's a little much, right, uh, Sir Kenneth?" <laughs> and now he's like my favorite thing in the movie. And in so many ways, mm-hmm. he is the saddest character in the movie, right? I mean, when he says, "I don't remember the exact." phrasing but when he talks about you know my biggest sin was bringing a child into a world i knew was doomed huge nolan moment huge nolan moment you know like that's that's him talking you know in some ways as a parent and as someone who's aware of just how many 
you know, dangers we face. And that's a, I mean, that's, that's him, but that's also, I think, you know, I mean, that's me. <laughs> a lot of yeah. us, you know, who have kids um, and that anxiety, and which is an anxiety, a lot of people have had, have this anxiety. I mean, you know, you're always wondering like, yeah. what have I done? But, you know, I mean, I think my parents had that anxiety in the 70s when I was born. I mean, it's, it's you know, I, I look back some years ago, I, I got into this, um, I, I went down this path of watching documentaries about the various Turkish coups that happened. Uh, mm. There was a Turkish journalist journalist named Mehmet Ali Brand who did these like 10-part documentaries about about all our coups because <laughs> um, we've had a number of them. And, he, and each is not just about the coup. It's about kind of the years, you know, before the coup, all the crazy things that were happening, which ultimately led to the coup. And so I was, I was watching an episode about the 1980 coup and it was talking about um, you know, basically Turkey in the 1970s and Ankara in the 1970s um, and sort of some of the places where my parents were working in the 1970s. I mean, it, it, and like, I remember my childhood being like magical. <laughs> we lived in Ankara. Mm-hmm. I did whatever I wanted. I was out all day with my friends, like wandering the streets and, and just doing all sorts of things. And being a kid. Being a kid and also being a completely, you know, unattended kid, you know, like just left mm-hmm. to my own devices. You know, we talk about that. So, oh, when I was a kid, you know, there were no helicopter parents. But, but like, I was in a Turkey that was like being torn apart by something approaching civil war. And it's it's so funny because you hear about like neighborhoods, you know, each each block would have like its own kind of political reality. So like you couldn't mm-hmm. cross over into certain neighborhoods or you couldn't cross over into certain blocks if you were a leftist or if you were a right winger or like, it was like, I mean, it was like wow. street warfare. Um, I, it just, it was just the craziest thing. And I just, you know, I mean, I've always, I've always appreciated my parents, but I gained a newfound appreciation for them because in some way they shielded me from that. I don't know that they consciously shielded from me from it, yeah. but like, you know, the university where my dad worked was being shot up, you know, um, I remember. What did he do there? Was he, he was a, a professor? professor? Yeah, I, m- I remember when I went to visit him once. We had to go through like <laughs> military, like m- like basically a military checkpoint. There were soldiers everywhere, so mm-hmm. I was always, oh, my dad works for the military. Later, I found out he was an economics professor, right? But the the school was in such turmoil that there was like you know military police all over the place. Um, so anyway, you know, it's a common parental anxiety, right? And and at any given point. Right you know, you think you're the person that discovered that parental anxiety and you're not. Um, Now, you know, our current reality might be worse. It probably is. But at the same time, it's, it's, you know, when you see a a film or any kind of work of art that speaks to that, that tells you, one, you're not crazy for worrying about this stuff. And two, Mm -hmm. you're not alone. And that is one of those is a terrifying uh, thought and the other is a comforting thought, you know, and it kind of works together, right? right? Because it's like, no, like sh- shit's bad and you should be worried, but you know what? We're all kind of in the same boat, and, and and that's, I mean, that's kind of what art is for. Art art is never really for just comfort or for making you feel like shit. It's actually kind of the two things work together when when a when a when a film or a book or or whatever is really working. I think. 
Yeah, and I think the thing that's interesting about these look, this is still a, a like a blockbuster entertainment, oh, yeah. and like we you've you've said before, and we've talked about like if this movie had come out in normal times, it would have done mm-hmm. like it would have made a billion dollars. Everyone would be arguing about it. There would be more argument, more conversations about if it's inscrutable or not. And I think it has this feeling that makes it different from Oppenheimer in that there is a little bit of the wish fulfillment mm-hmm. of. Don't worry, there's a guy named the protagonist <laughs> who's going to save yeah. the world, right? Like, the world is going to be saved. And and in the case of the film, again, the world that he chooses to save again and again is a mother and her mm-hmm. child, right? So it's like, that that film ends with this feeling of, like, this the, the, the mind-blowing of all Nolan films. Like, there's that, that feeling of... His movies always end with an acceleration mm-hmm. that I think is so, so fast. Maybe not Oppenheimer, but the others end with this, like, really interesting... Um, it you know acceleration and energy and you kind of feel at the end like okay this guy's figured it out he understands that like how to, don't try to understand it feel it and he's figured out how to run this organization and things are gonna be okay whereas Oppenheimer is left a puddle of humanity looking at the the ripples on the water like I destroyed the world and so Tenant even though it's a bleak movie offers the little bit of relief that you get from a blockbuster movie um and, and there's that line. You know, um, Robert Pattinson says it, uh, and, and I, you you probably remember this line better than I do. But he says, you know, you know what's happens happened, which is a statement mm-hmm. of faith. In what's the, happened? Yeah, what's happens? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, a yeah. statement of faith in the mechanics of the world, or something like that, right? What is it? I can't remember. It's exactly what it is. Uh, yep, because I rewatched that scene like three times last it's, night because it's the it's, best it's, scene it's, in the movie. It's, such a, it's 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 the best scene in the movie, except for all the other scenes in the movie. <laughs> Except for all the other stuff. <laughs> no, I mean, like, except for every every I'm, other I'm, shot. I'm watching it. I movie. think this is my favorite. Oh no, no, wait, this is my favorite. Wait, no, I think this is my. Fa- I mean, you just turn into a little child watching these. It's the same with Oppenheimer. I'm like, oh, the Truman scene is my favorite scene. In the well, maybe the Stimson scene is my. Fa- well, but then there's a speech. But then there's Trinity, and you know, oh, but what about the montage I, at the beginning? Not to, what about not, the ending? You know, like it's not to divert yeah. the conversation, <laughs> but the the scene where he gives the speech after mm-hmm. the bomb is the most harrowing thing in Christopher Nolan's filmography. Absolutely, I can't. It bothers me so much. Except maybe the ending of the movie. It that yeah, ki- yeah I don't know that sequence. The the there's something specific which is the couple making out and then crying. You know I've seen it only twice now compared to your I think 13, it's 14 viewings. I don't know where you're at. The, the now. couple the couple crying is is like gets me on such a deep level. And the other thing, and I've watched this movie seven times, I still can't tell. Seven times. I've seen it seven times. Yeah. Um, That's amazing. Well, remember. Uh, when I talked to you, had I just seen it? I'd seen it once, yeah. right? I, I, when we'd had coffee, no, you'd seen it three times. Well, I'd already seen it three times. Okay. <laughs> or you were going, okay, it, was, was going to my- it was the week before you published that, by the way, excellent piece I never, yeah. I thought was great, but you were like, I'm going again, maybe for your third or fourth time. You told me you'd seen it three seen times. It, you, I was you know like, what? I, I saw it four envy. times before that piece ran. Because the fourth time, you know, I, I yeah. went because I made sure like the fact checker came uh, so we could just like make sure. Yeah, because you were telling me like, I got to get a fact checker yeah, in to see right. this movie. Right, 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 um, right, right, right. And, and and the first, I mean, look, it's it's you know, it's, somebody was like, oh, you know, the movie just came out, you know, a week ago, and he's already seen it seven times. And I was like, well, I saw it seven times over the course of a month and a half. That's still that's still that's so still great, crazy though. for people. But but like for me, it's like okay, whatever. I was seeing it like once a week or whatever uh, while I was working on the. Well, piece. It's also your job. It was my, I was, it's also I was, your job. It is my job. But also, I was I was working on this piece, and I really did need to. You can't write about this fucking movie having only watched it once, and I'm not sure you can write about it having only watched it twice. I mean, and. You know, mm-hmm. I, like every time I saw it, 
there was there was new stuff that made sense for my piece and uh, for my pieces. Um, so it made sense, you know, to see it f- for work. But also, I enjoyed it so much that it was absolutely no chore to see it again. I'm, I I wish I could go watch it in IMAX 70 millimeter right now, but the screenings are sold out. You know, have you seen it only in IMAX or have no? You seen I've it seen it, I've seen formats? I've seen it in the I mean, I've seen it in 70 millimeter and I've seen it in 35 millimeter uh, and, and in IMAX. Okay. Um, so I can't remember. We were talking about something. No, we were talking about the, uh, the speech after Hiroshima, the couple that he sees crying. So I've seen it all these times. And the thing I can't tell because it's so dark is it looks like they're holding a child. Uh, Does it? It looks like they're holding a child. Now, there's no credit for a child because you see a credit for the couple. Um, so there's no credit for a child. So that might just be uh, my my mind uh, racing. But but it looks like like they're it looks like they're holding something sort of just a little away. Well, there's the sound of a child crying in that scene. I mean, Isn't there's there? a there's a there's a child crying that kind of cuts through when he's um, there's a scream that cuts through when he's uh, when when he's talking. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean that that the, the scream. The, that's um, right. The sound design in that scene is incredible. Um, it's a it's a devastating. Oh my scene. that scene when is I a, first saw like the, a show. Yeah, star. when I first saw that scene, I mean that was you know first time I saw the film. That scene and then the ending were kind of like holy shit. And people were like, oh, how's the how's the the bomb? Like how's the Trinity scene? And I was like, you know what's crazy is the scene after the Trinity scene is the one that like it's really the best gets scene you. In the movie. Um, and they work together. I mean they're they're, well, they're cut they're cut similarly. Like they're meant to be two pieces of a puzzle. You know? Yeah. He achieves something so amazing in this movie, especially in the, well, the whole thing, but those, those sort of like origin 20, 40 minutes at the beginning of Oppenheimer mm-hmm. becoming who mm-hmm. he is and just how he creates these visual images, him reading T.S. Eliot, The Wasteland, mm-hmm. him looking at the Picasso, like him throwing the glasses uh, against the mm-hmm. wall repeatedly. And like, you sort of feel like you're watching someone who like is not well, but, and, but sort of seems to figure out himself out and his role and things like that. And people have commented very wisely that it's the first time that like Nolan doesn't have to deal with a ton of expletive backstory because he just has the history to lean on and, and he picks the right images mm-hmm. to situate us in time. And I think that's one of the strongest things about this movie and that differentiates it from Tenet is there's a lot of literal world building mm-hmm. to do in Tenet. Whereas here it's like, no, this is the history and like we all have frame of references no matter how much or how little we know. Mm-hmm. It's easier to understand this. But again, that's what makes Tenet so interesting is that it's a work of friction that reflects on some of these yeah, and same themes. It's, um, I mean, as far as Oppenheimer is concerned, that's actually something that's in the book, which is, which is, you know, how Oppenheimer kind of went out and explored the world and you know, discovered modern mm-hmm. art and, 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 you know, uh, 20th century music and like all these things that in some ways connected to the revolution in physics that, that he was a part of. Um, and it's, 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 it's very, I mean, it was a key thing in his life and it, it's so well handled in the film, so movingly handled in the film and, and really yeah. relates to how, you know, he was able in his mind to sort of reconcile what he was seeing or what he was sort of discovering with quantum physics, with the new science and sort of all the advances being made um, around him. You know, it was like, it was like reconciling theory with, with society, not with practice, but with society, with culture. 
Um, and that was the thing that, you know, with Oppenheimer, uh, you know, people always, you know, he was a very cultured man. Like he was somebody who could talk to mm -hmm. you about art and t talk to you about music and talk to you about literature and things like that, which is very different from a lot of physicists. Um, and, and <laughs> yeah. so, and, and so he was very aware of these things and that's, you know, ultimately kind of the tragedy of his story is because, because he is aware, like he's a sensitive person who cares about these things and thinks about these things beyond just the world of science and, 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 you know, he's, he's helping to destroy it, you know? Um, yeah, so anyway, but to well, get back to Tenet. And again, it's <laughs> like, it would, no, no, this is great. Because I think that one of the things that's so interesting is that like, you know, Tenet rips, it's really great. I would not say, and I think John, John David Washington is great yeah. in it, but I would not say that I have a deep, abiding understanding for who he is as a character. I mean, his literal name is the protagonist. And the closest we get to learning almost anything about him is when uh, Robert Pattinson orders him a Diet Coke earlier in the movie. And he's like, I don't, I don't drink, I drink, I prefer soda water. And he says, no, you don't, which is beautiful because their, their relationship is, is so special. But it's almost like, again, Tenet is the fun version of Oppenheimer in that it's a movie about saving the world. And, you know, but you don't have to get to know him. He's a little bit like a video game character on, on some level, except the performance is so convincing mm -hmm. and the movie is so propulsive that you're not bothered by it. Yeah, we, we don't get any backstory about him. And, and, and that's, I mean, that's kind of what's great about him. Like we don't, we can project yeah. onto him, but he has, I mean, he really has personality. Like I, 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 I agree with you. It's, it's actually a really nice performance by John David Washington. A lot of people don't like that performance. I don't know why. I find him very compelling. We don't know much about him, but, you know, like, that's okay. Uh, you know, we, we don't need to know anything about him. I mean, I, I, I think movie, you know, action movies sometimes get a little too much into sort of, oh, I got to, you know, establish sort of the rules of my character and how he's a rule breaker. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, Die Hard is a classic example. Oh, he's getting a divorce, you know. So, yeah, I mean, it's all this stuff. Um, yeah, and and that's kind of I think a a, a trope that was established. Uh, I mean, established years ago, but also uh, kind of um, accelerated in the '90s, in the '80s and '90s world of of sort of the you know the action renaissance of that era, where we had to learn all these things of oh, he plays the piano, or you know he, he plays saxophone, or this is his favorite drink. Blah blah. You know. <laughs> he plays saxophone. He drinks tequila. Right, right. <laughs> Just, you know, yeah. <laughs> and his name and his name is well, tequila. You know, um, and his name yeah, is right. tequila. Uh, but I feel like you know there is also a school of thinking, and and Stanley Kubrick was one of these filmmakers who was like no backstory we don't need to know anything about these people. The movie starts right. and we're there with them. And if the movie's doing its job, if the filmmaker is doing its job, we will follow what they're doing and we'll be interested in them. But we don't need to know all this shit about like, you know. They're, yeah. Well, it's interesting because our, our mutual buddy, Blake Howard, wrote this review of Tenet where he referred to, kind of compared it to Michael Mann's Black Hat, yeah. which by the way. Two movies that Blake does not like. He doesn't. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, no, you know, nobody's perfect. But um, I think Black Hat rules. Black Hat I rules, think it's yeah. a really cool movie, and it has a lot in common with this. But one of the things that I do think is interesting about it is when you're introducing the Chris Hemsworth character, he's like, "I was in prison, and I went to Gladiator Academy," and it's like that is the prototypical 
Michael Mann, almost to like a comical degree, like self-referential. Michael Mann's referencing himself. And I feel like with Tenet, there's a little bit of that in protagonist where it's like, he's defined by the fact that he takes a cyanide pill. So we know he's loyal. Exactly. But that's the thing. And that's all And they need, I mean, but they need, but that's a story element. He takes the cyanide pill and that is, you know, and that is then presented as the reason why he is allowed to join Tenet, even though apparently he created Tenet. <laughs> you know, like that's an interesting, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like you got to take the cyanide pill, but like, but actually, uh, this is this is your this is your company, your rules. Um, I've always wanted to know more about who Martin Donovan is supposed to be. I'm always just curious because he's kind of he's perfect for that part, but he's what in the movie for eight minutes max, bless, and he just does this. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we I don't were, know. This is why we I were. Tenet yeah, sequel. exactly. I mean, that's the other thing. Were we robbed of Tenet sequels? Like, was this? Was he planning is, on yeah. making more? I don't. know. I never asked him. I, I feel like he probably wasn't. But, but I would love well, it. Well, if, if we, we have got, to clamor. I know. For it. I know. We want. We need. Well, there is a moment. There's a moment towards the end, actually, that I kind of forgot about, which negates what I said earlier. Where he, they're about to do the siege, the siege at Stalsk Twelve, mm-hmm. which that sequence is unbelievable. <laughs> And you see people training yeah. for it. You see people training and going through the turnstiles or, or or whatever it is they're doing. And that's the moment where you're like, oh man, the tenant organization is like, this is like, this is really happening. Mm-hmm. And like, there's almost a franchise being made in that mm-hmm. moment. Uh, and you can imagine something outside of the scope of the movie. And it just never quite gets there. Yeah, it's, it's, there is. Because of what happened. Well, yeah, yeah. But, but it is. No, I mean, it gives you all these great hints about the rest of this world and the question is like you want to know more about the rest of the world rest of this world because you know because he's so good at evoking these things with just these little snippets yeah but he's so good at evoking these things with these little snippets that like it might suck to know more about the rest of like like I, no, that's, that's the thing. True. I don't want to see a tenant headquarters maybe I do like maybe maybe if he makes a tenant too like we would see it but um but you know it's like um you know, careful what you wish for. Well, I think that's really interesting because, you know, to bring it back to Oppenheimer for a second, one of the things that's amazing about Oppenheimer is its first hour is like an incredible Bildungsroman. Mm -hmm. The second hour is an incredible heist movie. And the third hour is like a courtroom drama, essentially. And he does all three really, really well. And this brings up the fact that as it almost always happens, when he makes a movie, people are like, when are you going to make a James Bond movie? And like, are you having conversations with the Broccoli's? And like, is your James Bond, they're going to cast Aaron Taylor Johnson as the next James Bond. And whenever I read that stuff, I'm like, he's kind of made his James Bond movie. He made that, the snow sequence in Inception Mm -hmm. is a James Bond movie. I mean, that movie is kind of a James Bond movie, but this is a spy movie. Oh yeah. And it, and it's a great spy movie do you think of it as a spy movie? Oh yeah, I mean, I think of it as his. I think of it as his James Bond, but also I think of it as an example of why he should never make a James Bond movie. Because I'm like, I, I love the idea that. I mean, look, I, I love James Bond movies too, and and I've spent you know a, a ridiculous amount of time thinking about them and writing about them, um, and some of them are masterpieces but like i don't want christopher nolan making james bond movies um i don't I either. mean 
it, it would be uh, it would be a disaster. I mean, first of all, the broccolis would have to give up all control, uh, and right. it would have to be like completely his thing. Um, I don't think he's going to do it. I think he loves the idea of it, but I think in some ways, I love the idea of him doing these things that are like James Bondy, but are so him that it's like you should never make a James Bond movie, but you should keep sort of having the idea in the back of your head so that it feeds these things. Like in some ways, if you can think of Tenet almost yeah. like a sequel to Inception, right? Um, 100%. And then like, I would love to see the third one. Like I would love to see another action movie that is like informed by sort of Bond and genre and and the mixing of genres and also by whatever crazy uh, structural idea he has next time, you know? Um, and yeah. Well, that's why he can't do a Bond movie, by the way, is that he won't want to hit the A, B, C, D, E, F, G marks that a James Bond movie has to yeah, hit. It's, it's, to be, like, they have to move a certain way. It's a producer's film, not a director's yeah, I mean, it's, film, it's right? absurd. I mean, the, the, you know, it's, look, the Bond thing has certainly influenced his work, clearly, even in the Batman movies. Um but he has influenced Bond in turn, right? I mean, right, right. The the, the Daniel Craig Bonds are are very much an attempt to sort of, you know, to 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 get in on some of the dark gritty action that the, that, vibes. the vibes that that Nolan kind of revolutionized in sort of blockbuster. Yeah, I mean, and, like Skyfall has a literal riff from. Dark Knight, which is they catch the guy, but his intention was to get caught. Right. Like it's it's very very present, yeah. and, and I love Skyfall. It's maybe my favorite James Bond movie, but they're beholden to him. They're beholden to him. Um, but those are ideas also that like I mean, in some ways he, because of the the his reference points, he has reconnected to the things that James Bond films were always kind of connected to. Like because I mean, the guy who meant to get caught, that's kind of a Doctor Mabuza thing, and I know he really. Mm -hmm. um, you know, mm -hmm. he, I mean, like Fritz Lang is actually a huge influence on, on, uh, oh, on, spies, you know, particularly, yeah, spies, right? Spies, Metropolis, um, Testament of Dr. Mabuza. I mean, these are big influences on Nolan. Uh, and it's, he said it, or somebody said, it. I think Jonathan Nolan talked about how, like, Christopher Nolan would make him watch, like, Fritz Lang movies and stuff. Uh, it comes up in the excellent Tom Schoen book, oh, yeah. The Nolan Variations, mm -hmm. too. It does, yeah. Well, they specifically pull a... He talks about spies mm -hmm. in relation to Tenet and how he would never showed it to the cast because it felt a little too remote, <laughs> but it was on his mind. And spies, I haven't seen it since film school, but it's incredible. Yeah, I, I haven't seen it in a long time. I have the DVD here. Uh, but, um, but yeah, I mean, so... But, like, the, the Fritz Lang films, in turn, influenced Hitchcock... Uh, and North by Northwest, in turn, kind of, you know, influenced Bond. I mean, so the, there is this through line that in many ways Nolan is reconnecting to or, or reconnecting people to. Um, and I think that that's, you know, it's all kind of, it's all connected in that sense. But yes, absolutely. Like, you're absolutely right in that, you know, the, the, the Daniel Craig Bonds, like, are riffing on the Nolan universe and the Nolan sensibility. Well, and I... I think if he, it's interesting that you bring up North by Northwest because that came up as he was worried that Tenant was going to be his North by Northwest, the overly self-referential 
you know, movie made by the auteur. Like he, it felt like he was maybe repeating himself, but which I think is <laughs> well, it's like, that's what most people would kill to have a movie be their North by Northwest. It's like, <laughs> yeah, I know. Oh, this is my citizen Kane. Fuck. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of meta, like, I know it's, it's, you know, ambulance, the Michael Bay movie talks about Michael Bay movies yeah, in yeah. it. Like, you know, it, it feels very like these guys are reaching a certain point in their careers and they're looking backwards. And like, that's a little, that's not a little, that's on the nose. It's the definition of on the nose, but at least it feels like he's having fun with it. Right. And Tenant is his most fun movie. And, you know, to your point about like, I don't want Tenant sequels, you know, that would be really strange. And the fact that some Bond movies are masterpieces, a big pandemic rediscovery for me and the movie I think about the most when I watch this, is on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which just has this incredible action that he's clearly a huge fan mm-hmm. of. And the fact that it's Lazenby's, who I think is a pretty good Bond. Great Bond. His only Bond movie. Like, this movie feels as though it's it's beholden to that. And it's, um, maybe, I'd have to think about the details, but maybe in its singularity mm-hmm. within the larger franchise. There's nothing like it on either mm-hmm. end. I think, until much later in the series. Yeah, I mean, On Her Majesty's Secret Service, I think he said that that's his favorite Bond. And um, I go back and forth on it. I've had to rank Bond films over the years, so uh, (laughs) On Her Majesty's Secret Service is not my favorite Bond, but it is up there. Uh, And it is, yeah, it's so particular. What is your favorite Bond? My number one on the list uh, is Casino Royale, uh, which which is, I mean, which is great. Um, It's great. But in some ways, my favorite Bond movie, which was number two on my list, is For Your Eyes Only. And which which also, yeah. I think, adheres to the the rule that everyone's favorite Bond movie is actually whatever Bond movie they saw first. And that was the one I saw first. Um, yeah, for me, it's called uh, Dr. No. And Dr. Well, Dr. No was my father's favorite. So, like, I grew up in a doctor. I grew up in a Connery house and a Dr. No house. And that movie really blew his Oh, mind. yeah. I mean, I... I grew up in a Connery house too, but but I saw the Roger Moore films first. So, or yeah, I saw I saw For Your Eyes Only first, and then I I don't know what I saw next, but I think it was maybe Spy Who Loved Me. For Your Eyes Only came out when I was like you know eight or something. Um, it's a pretty great movie. I I'm not a, I'm a self confessed not a Roger Moore fan, but there's a couple in there For Your Eyes Only in particular that just rip that are so. I good. mean Roger Moore. Eh, I mean look. You know, we can, we can, this is a different podcast, <laughs> but. Well, yeah, uh, I was yeah. Gonna, it's good. We, we went around. Uh, but, 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 uh, but, but no, I mean, I, you know, Roger Moore and Connery kind of defined Bond and, and sort of turned him into the sort of the, the, mo- the motif that everyone thinks of. Like the Bond in everybody's mind is neither Sean Connery or Roger Moore, but it's kind of a mixture of the two, if you think about yeah, it, you know? Yeah, that's well said. Um, yeah, I totally agree. You know, and, and nobody's ever been able to really capture that, and, and nobody's really tried to. I mean, Pierce, Pierce Brosnan could have been the best Bond. He just didn't get the yeah. best Bond got movies. Got saddled with some bad scripts. Yeah, he got saddled with bad movies, uh, but he would have, I mean... Except for one. One is an all-timer. Well, I, li- I, I, but the rest I, liked, I like two of them. I, I, I like I Golden Eye a lot, and I, and I actually love Tomorrow Never Dies. I love Tomorrow, Tomorrow Never Dies, dies too. I think Tomorrow it's Never Dies. It is. I don't understand the hate. I think it's actually pretty cool, and it's weirdly prophetic. And um, Jonathan um, Price is Chef's Kiss, perfect in that and, movie. Well, would you say delicious in that movie? <laughs> <laughs> I, now yeah. I would because you reminded yeah. me. All right, back to Tenant, and then I have I have two 
I have some real egghead shit about okay. Tenant I want to ask you about. And one of the things is like a quick one, and one of them I think could lead to a, a nice way to wrap up. The first one is, do you think the scientist who kills herself in the future is Clemency Poesy, the woman who he meets early in the movie, who invented Tenet? Because I always wonder if she's supposed to be that person who's teaching him is the woman that actually invented or, or inverted the first, uh, moved the algorithm back in time. I mean, that would be awesome. Uh, I don't think it's her. Um, I would say, is there, like, what makes you think that? Because, because I, 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 that's fascinating. I'd never thought of that. Well, I think it's, it, honestly, and this is one of the things that, like, I'm a, a little significantly less interested in in this movie, which is, like, solving yeah. it. Like, oh, I, yeah. You can't I, solve it. I, I have no interest in, like, like, I, I'm, like, I'm not on the R. Christopher Nolan being, like, what does Tenet mean? I'm interested in, like, the Sator square, but I ultimately think that, like, it's interesting because, like, I don't think the puzzle of this movie is is that interesting. And I think that reflecting on that is kind of like, I'm boring. I think the thematic stuff is interesting. Yeah. But what makes me interested in this question is more because the, the, that the way that the movie plays with time and the idea that someone could have inverted themselves and turned around and so because it's not a time travel movie. That's the thing that I think is so specific. Yeah. People are not like, I'm getting in a time machine and going 300 years into the future. It's, I'm going backwards through time and I'm making these sacrifices and so the idea that many generations later or whatever which maybe negates the possibility that it is the same person mm -hmm. but maybe it's an earlier version of her I love that we don't we never know and so it's one of those things that adds to the layer of complexity mm -hmm. of like what's happening in this story and it is it does bring up the question of because we talk they talk about Tenet being something founded many years in the future and they talk about the technology that we're dealing with being something many years in the future. Um, I don't think they ever say how many years in the future it's possible. Yeah. No, they, they never, never say. say. That's what so I'm curious So it's like, is it 100 years, 200? You know, but then obviously he's there somewhere in the future. And right. he's, you know, so it's it's within a, a lifespan, like within, within, his, lifespan. It's exactly. within his lifetime. and. At the beginning of the film, he hasn't traveled back. It's, it's not a. It's not the version of him that's traveled back, um, mm -hmm. right? Because because he would he would have memory of it. Like it's, he doesn't know. You know, he would have yeah. memory, but he doesn't know anything. Right. So he's not. He's traveling forward sometime in the future. He's going to create this, but then he's going to sort of then hire his former self. Right, which is you know, to, to try not to think about that, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, try, don't try yeah. to understand it, yeah. feel it, right? And so yeah, then yeah, Clemens yeah, exactly. Poesy could be because because that's the thing. It's like you get the you get the knowledge from the future. You, yeah. you become aware of, and she's an expert, yeah, and you become aware of the fact that this technology exists, and then in the future, you create it. <laughs> By the way, right. speaking of which, it's so telling that the guy from yesterday is in this movie, right? Because, oh, because he's so no, good. but like he's doing the same thing in that movie. Like that's the thing. He, oh, that's like, that movie he is. is an analog of Tenet. Um, oh my god! You know what? I actually haven't seen it. I remember seeing him on the poster though. But I should. He's he's it, incredible. He was one of those quiet. Like, could this guy be James Bond? And I would yeah, watch by he's, that. He's by great. Way, that he's would be he's absolutely captivating right. in this book. But the thing I was going to say was, and, and you're absolutely right when you say, this is not a movie to figure out. You'll go crazy wow. trying to figure it out. Um, it's not the point. It's not the point. Because I, at some point I said, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit down and diagram just exactly 
where Neil is, what's he doing, and which version of him? Because because like at the end, it's like he has to go back so he can go back into the tunnel. But then he's also somewhere like he's also the guy at the beginning of the movie, and then he also has to like like he saves John David Washington. Yeah, and so so like how many turnstiles is is this guy operating on? Um, but. Uh, but like I was like, there's no way. There's no way to figure any of this out. You just kind of lose your mind because also you're also you also don't have full all the information that you would need. Intentionally so, I think. Um, Nolan doesn't make puzzle movies. People think he does, no. and I think people use that as a criticism of his. I know Richard Brody's whole thing is like, oh, these puzzle movies. He doesn't make puzzle movies. Uh, <laughs> these puzzle movies. Like, he doesn't make puzzle movies. There's nothing about these films where like once you figure it out, it's like. There's nothing to figure out. There might be little elements. Doesn't unlock something new. Yeah, there might be little elements that I mean, and I have this theory about Inception, you know, that that I think makes perfect sense and sort of is a is an interesting way to look at Inception. But you don't have to do that to to figure out Inception. Mm -hmm. There are movies that are kind of puzzle movies that can be sort of oh, you know, the final twist sort of explains something, and then the movie kind of falls apart, right? I mean. I mean, you know, Sixth Sense is kind of like that. A movie I, I like now more than I did when I first saw it. But I remember when I first saw it, mm. about halfway through, I realized, oh, he's dead. Uh, and the film, uh -huh. like, the film kind of falls <laughs> apart when you realize that the guy is dead. Because, because right. there's no it's story. There's nothing happening. It's just a bunch of scenes designed to sort of, sort of feedback. Get you to an ending. Feedback to to the, the twist at the end of the movie. Now, there's a lot of great stuff in Sixth Sense, and I, and I actually do appreciate it now, and I've since become uh, an M. Night Shyamalan fan, but but there are movies where, like, that you're supposed to figure out or that, that are supposed to kind of explain themselves to you, and then everything sort of locks into place, and that's great, but those movies die for me. Um, I totally agree. Well, that's why I like coming... Beyond the fact that I, this is like a rip and action mm -hmm. movie and really cool, I like coming back to it because I made the comment before, like, in some ways this movie doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And I think that in the way that that manifests for me, even though I've seen it so many times, every time I watch it, I kind of go like, oh, th now that makes sense. Yeah. Or, oh, okay, Neil's going to invert himself or whatever yeah. the case is, right? Like, it, the structure is so intentionally convoluted Though I don't think confusing if you pay very, very close attention, but it still requires multiple sure. watches. But the the whole, the, it, 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 it's a puzzle that you think kind of wants you to solve it, but really what happens is you get deeper and more appreciative of its thematic complexity. Yeah. It's not like a movie, it's, it's not a movie in some ways of like pure ideas. It's a movie of really interesting moving themes, right? He uses the ideas of time travel and science to make a movie that's thematically fascinating yes and also he does something that i think he does in memento as well in memento um because of the structure of the story and because it's you know being told backwards as it were it it cre it puts you in the state of mind of the, the protagonist of memento right mm -hmm. so that your mind is kind of wiped clean after every scene um because of because of the structure, and it makes you it, it oh, sort of well, puts you yeah. in in like you 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 kind of become like the, you're the, off your footing. You're off your footing. You become kind of like the protagonist because you don't know, like most movies, each scene gives you more information, and you accumulate information by the movie. And Memento does the opposite, 
And Tenet kind of does that too. I gotta rewatch Tenet it. Tenet kind of does that too because Tenet, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I think in my Nolan ranking, I have Tenet like right behind Memento, even though I, you know, I don't rewatch Memento the way I rewatch Tenet. Um, but but Tenet does that. Like Tenet, because of the nature of the story, um, if you think too hard about, if you think too hard about like what's going on in each individual, what's going on behind the scenes or beyond each individual scene, your 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 brain sort of short circuits, and right. and or at least mine does. Um, so at any given point, I'm like, now which Neil is this? Like, and it's like. <laughs> You'll go crazy thinking about that. Uh, but John David Washington's having the same exactly. experience. Who am I dealing exactly. with? Exactly. Right so, now? so you're kind of watching it through his eyes, and there's all this stuff happening. And at the end, he still doesn't really know what's happening. Like he still doesn't know. He still doesn't know that this is his operation. Um, it's the last thing he finds Until out. Until the yeah, the Randy goes, "This is mine," yeah, or something the like last that. Right thing when he he's finds- in the, when he kills Priya. Yeah. Well, exactly. This is the last scene. But uh, I always when I think last scene, I always forget the Priya scene at the end. I think the last scene. Of, oh, you know, because you're thinking of the farewell freeway, the Leone the, scene yeah, as he describes the, it between Aaron Taylor Johnson, Robert Pattinson, yeah, and which is uh, such John a great scene. It's just such and absolutely a, a Sergio Leone scene. At first, you know, first time I saw that film was like Leone. Like that's. It's so well done. Yeah. Um, I watched it three times last night. I just kept rewinding it and watching it again and again. Because it, again, it wants you to tease out what it's about and you're having the same experience that the protagonist and, and that's the, Like, wait a and minute. And that's the line. It's like more so than, I mean, I, I quoted it earlier, which is an, ex- an expression of faith in the mechanics of the world. That, more than anything, is is the line that defines the movie more so than don't try to understand it, try to feel it, or don't try to understand it, feel it. Like, one is kind of a, a um, you know, an instruction for how to experience mm-hmm. the movie. And then another is, and then the last one is like a justification for, for, for like how, is like an explanation for how the movie has, has structured itself, which is basically trust us, like just keep, keep moving, keep moving through, and and you will get you will get where you need to go, but you're not going to know. You're not. You're never going to have the full picture until you get to the very end. I think it's also a great <laughs> and so funny because it's dancing around the thing. The dumb question that I want to ask you, but it it it's a great uh, example of Nolan's brains and emotions in the same. Again, he's often accused of being a cold filmmaker. You know, in the same way that people say that this performance is cold, and I, I think especially with. Oppenheimer now being out, it's like we all can retroactively look back at these movies. You know, you mentioned earlier you rewatch Tenet more than Memento. My two biggest rewatches are The Dark Knight Rises. I rewatch mm-hmm. it twice a year. And this one, because I'm so into the symphonic mm-hmm. and emotional grandeur of what he's trying to do in these later movies. They're massive, but they feel things. And this that those two lines feel intellectual. One's intellectual and one's emotional. Yeah. And and Dark Knight, you're absolutely right. I mean, Dark Knight Rises of the three of his three Batman movies is probably, I mean, it's still awesome, but probably the least good of the three. And yet, that's the one I always want to watch. Um, Me too. And it's it, it rocks. rocks. So it hard. rocks. Um, and there's so much in it. There's, there's I mean, it's delightful. It's delightful on so many levels. Yeah. And you know. Um, it's also kind of a Bond movie. Absolutely a Bond movie. Like a Bond movie. Absolutely a Bond movie. Um, okay, and so a, and a hornier dumb... movie than Ooh. you remember. <laughs> then what, Very yeah. corny. But also, like, 
those that last hour once the I've always been of the belief that the movie should open with the football scene and then flashback. Mm. Like I've always thought that would be an interesting thing, but but that last hour, I don't think that I think without that last hour of Dark Knight Rises and Tenet, he's ever gonna he'd ever achieve what he achieves in the second Mm. hour of Oppenheimer, like that pace and that ability to hold things together, despite almost constant montage is. The editing in Dark Knight Rises is is borderline experimental, um, and yep. and it really is. In fact, I have a friend who's who's really into the who's really into the editing of Dark Knight Rises. After I saw Oppenheimer, I I, I messaged him and I was just like, you know, he's taking it to a whole new level here. Uh, and really, it really does. You can sense a progression from the the, the way the Dark Knight Rises tells its story to the way Tenet tells a story to the way Oppenheimer tells a story. Oh, 100%. Like there's a through line there. Absolutely. They're of a piece. Yeah, um, yeah and, they're, and they're, they're weirdly his biggest and most experiment. Like the fact that he crams in his, his biggest experiments into his biggest blockbusters is kind of amazing. Yeah. Okay, dumb, dumb, second dumb question, which is, do you think, or has you, have you ever considered this theory that exists on the internet that Neil is Max? <laughs> and does it matter? Doesn't matter. One, I agree. Fascinating theory. I'd, I'd never looked on the internet for it, but that was um, uh, on the Cows in the Field podcast episode yes. of Tenet, which I believe they had Tom Schoen on, right? Um, but yeah, they did. I love that's that a great, episode. That's a great episode. That it's a great episode. Um, yeah. Shout out to to Justin. Oh, yeah. they're 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 great. We, I gotta I gotta get that guy. In oh here yeah, to talk about absolutely, Tenet. absolutely, he would, he would we're go. absolutely bring him in. I, I just go. I just did, did an Oppenheimer episode with them. Um, yeah, I I saved it to listen to after just, this, so I hope I didn't lie today. I didn't, uh, um, but um, walk all over. No, them. no, no. We talk, we're talking about different things. Um, but uh, the that theory, which I don't remember all the details, but I I, I do remember Justin explaining it in very compelling fashion to the point where I was like, huh, interesting. But, you know, I don't think so. Uh, but it could be, you know. Me neither. I mean, it's, it's, it, but it, it, it turns on a dime. The theory turns on a dime. Uh, but also, like, there's so little there. There's, like, interesting ideas there that, that like, would make sense on so many, in so many ways. But it doesn't actually kind of give any sort of provide any sort of additional emotional heft to the story. No, exactly. And I feel like Nolan doesn't. People think Nolan plays games like that. I don't think he plays games like that. I think it's possible. Totally like agree. maybe he had some idea that maybe in you know if he made more tenets that somehow you know he would tie this all up and it would be some star warsy thing where it turns out he's the kid um i just can't see it i can't see him doing that i really can't you know he wants the ellipsis not the uh not the rounds you know yeah Yeah. the period he wants the ellipsis not the period yeah 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 no i i only ask as an entryway to talk about just briefly how i think one of the reasons this movie resonates for people is because it the relationship between Neil and the protagonist. It's so absurd to say the protagonist, but the relationship between Neil and the protagonist is one of the best things that's ever happened in a Nolan movie. And it works because you barely get enough of it. And because, and I think I only realized at this time, Neil's about to go die. Neil's about to go die. He's about to go get shot in the head uh, for his friend. Yeah. And it's really, I mean, 
Pattinson's performance is, is great in the film. Ugh. Uh, and he's so often, you know, um, like he's haunted too. He's very charming, very funny, but also kind of haunted. Uh, well, he's the one that understands everything in a way that nobody else he's does. He's the one that understands everything. He's the one that, um, but also in some ways, I mean, he's, he's, he's a bit like Robbie in Oppenheimer. He's always telling him to get some sleep right the way uh, Robbie is always mm-hmm. giving him, giving Oppenheimer, like there's a very the caring, oranges. nurturing quality to him. Um, and, and there's a, there's a weird kind of melancholy to him as well. And then, and of course I can't, like, this is, this is what I mean when I, when I say, if you think about it too much, you, you know, your brain fries, uh, because there's a part of me that's like, does he know he's going to die? at the end like does he know that he has to die in that scene like mm. but i you know and it's like no i don't think he, like within the logic of the movie i don't think he would know that he has to die but maybe he knows that he has to die i think he does i think that's why it, it resonates i mean you know i think that this is debatable but at least for me the the most emotional thing about rewatching it last night and by the way john david washington is incredible oh, yeah. in that scene he's like clearly he's holding it together he's but, crying Real yeah tears. but he's doing it in this great way of like i'm not gonna betray yeah. i'm not gonna like you know and it, and it speaks to so much missed opportunity in their friendship mm-hmm. even though their friendship he's experiencing the end of their friendship before he experiences the beginning yeah. and it is i think he knows he's gonna die because this and this is nolan at his by the way his funniest and his also in a way like his most sort of like light when he's like i for me this is the end of a beautiful friendship like just calling back to casablanca yeah. and being so obviously in tune with that but i i think he does know and i think that is why or maybe he see i'm questioning myself the protagonist knows he's gonna die because he's seen him on the floor yeah He's seen the little clip or the whatever that is on the back. So he he's knows, just realized. It. But maybe Neil doesn't Well, know. he's just realized that that's him. Right. Right. Cause cause he sees because Neil turns and he sees the the the, the thing and it's it clicks for him. Oh, this is the guy who was who saved my life at the beginning and then died in that hole there. Um and it and I think that's when he sort of realizes it and it it dawns and it's funny because it's like he should know it by now. And we we yeah. we kind of know it. Nolan does this really well. I mean, he does this in a number of his films where there is this idea that you're like almost subconsciously becoming aware of, but until it really clicks into place, it doesn't mm. like, and that's when you sort of have the emotional response. Um, you know, I mean, Oppenheimer is that. The ending of Oppenheimer, I mean, like the, the, the sort of twist ending of Oppenheimer, that's not a twist, but like the kind of, the reveal at the end of Oppenheimer, all those shots that we see, we actually have seen earlier in the film. Um, right. I don't know if you know, I didn't even catch this until like the third time. Like even the shot of Oppenheimer in the plane, which, which like totally rocked my world when I saw it at first time at the end of the movie, he see, he's there earlier. Like we see that. We see him once we see earlier, him in the plane. Yeah. We, see, we see the vapor trails of the, of the uh, nuclear missiles. We see the modern day nuclear missile. All these things he right. sees early in the film. So, Nolan is very good at that idea of like this this thought you have in the back of your head that the films slowly work out to until the very end when it kind of just says it. Prestige is like that, right? 
He tells us how the Dark Knight, the Dark Knight's like yeah, that. The Dark Knight's like that, but like In Prestige is like we know, mm. we know how the Tesla machine works. We know that it creates two of you know it creates a clone. It doesn't transport you. It creates a clone, and we know that Hugh Jackman kills the first clone that he sees. And we never think, because mm. the movie is, and because of the way he sells it, so because the movie is accelerating at that point, and and we've got other more immediate narrative demands to catch up with. But like up until the very end, when we finally see it, we don't ever really kind of, it doesn't just completely click for us. To say, oh, right. He's killing himself every single night. Every single right? time. Um, like we might be wondering, but wait, what's what happening to the clones? Is that a, like a, is that like a goof in the movie? And then at the end you're like, oh no, no, it's not. <laughs> it's actually like the big reveal. Um, so he's very good at that. And that's, uh, you know, one of those things. You're also tenet. saying something so, something so interesting about how this is another movie with a machine where someone enters and not, maybe not two versions of them comes out, but they're heading different directions in yes. time. And again, how Nolan comes back to the same repeated. Yeah, absolutely. Images, ideas over and over and over again. We could talk about this movie <laughs> forever. We should. We should, we, we should. should, we should. Let's keep doing it. But maybe for now, we we take a break and return to it in the future. Thanks so much, um, you know, for for chat and tenant. I know we've been wanting to do this for a while, so I'm so glad. I'm so glad, and I, I've been I've been working on a piece about tenant that's nowhere near being finished right now. Um, and I, you know, it's like there's so much in there, and it's like this this process of trying to come up with what I want to say and like weeding out all the other shit I want to say <laughs> and all the other things I could say about the movie. Um, because it's like, you, you know, it, it'd just be totally incoherent. Um, and, and the charm of Christopher Nolan as a filmmaker is that he is able to keep all these balls in the air. Now, of course, I have lots of friends who hate his movies and think they're dumb and think he's dumb that's and, and they think that people who like his movies wrong, are dumb. They're wrong, but that's allowed. It was so funny because then when I say, wow, there's, there's so much going on in this movie, I'm like, oh, these people are going to see me say that and think I'm just like the dumbest fucking human in the world. But I'm like, no, I think there's a lot going on Look, in the movie. We should, I think we are, uh, you know, it, one of the things I was going to say, of course, now we're not stopping, <laughs> but one of, if, if, if Neil doesn't know that he's going to die, he's committed himself to being a member of Tenant and moving back and forward in time and 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 weaving another fracture through time is is I think what he says in the movie or, or what exactly mm -hmm. it is and I think that there's a weird mirror in people that are like and part of why I want to talk about this movie so much is like no 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 it didn't have because of historically complicated moment in uh, historically complicated moment it did not have the reception it deserves and now that Nolan is sort of back on the ups upswing with Oppenheimer I think we all want to introduce people to a movie that who's who's like rewards get better every single time you see it and i think the only way to do that is to get warner brothers to re-release it in 70 millimeter i'm at uh, so i mean that's the thing about the about the film is that we had tenant discourse but we were sort of robbed of tenant discourse i mean the tenant discourse became about oh does christopher nolan want us all to die in movie theaters blah 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 you know it, it, got, yeah. it got silly um and then worse than that, why did he make another movie where I can't understand what people are saying? Which I watched it with headphones on and I had no trouble with the intelligence. I've never had any problems with the sound in any of his movies to the point where, here's the thing. The things you need to hear, you hear. 
there's other stuff that's kind yep. of mumbled sometimes and and that's there are a variety of reasons for that you know he he doesn't use adr uh you know he he doesn't mind it if if some lines are muffled like i think he probably finds that a little more um you know realistic but also it's like it's good to keep you on your you know it, it's it's one of those things that keeps you watching and keeps you attentive you gotta lean yeah, in. you have to kind of lean in that's okay I've never, I, I've just yeah. never had problems with the dialogue. I mean, maybe some people do. You know, it's possible some places are just like messing up the mix. Who knows? But I've never really had an issue with the dialogue. There was, I think there was like one screening of Interstellar I went to where like it, the sound was like just kind of fucked up. But I, I think that was like a fluke. I don't think that was like the way most people thought. I saw that in IMAX and it was one of the most astonishing sounding movies I've ever heard. Um, one thing that I think was really interesting in seeing Oppenheimer in 70 IMAX last weekend, I saw it at the City Walk out here in LA and it was by by far a different movie in a 70 millimeter IMAX than it is in, in 70 millimeter. But you, if you know what you're listening for, and I spend a lot of time with, with headphones on listening to people talk, so I know you can tell how close so much of the audio in that movie is to original production mm -hmm. audio. Like, the reverbs in the room are the reverbs of how those rooms are going to yeah. sound. Now, maybe he's just next level dialing it in, but uh, my impression was like, man, so much of this is like production sound sweetened. Oh, it absolutely is. So close I, I've, to what it should I've sound I've been like. interviewing the, the people who did the sound for, uh, for, for Oppenheimer. Because um, <gasps> I'm doing, I'm actually doing a piece <sighs> about IMAX and Oppenheimer. Uh, but... In order to do that, I had to talk to I talked to the sound mixer, I talked to um, the the sound designer, uh, and I'm trying to talk to the dialogue editor. Um, and I can't. And wait the to thing read that. the thing Holy they've said shit. is, you know, because you know IMAX cameras are loud, right? Um, and they're so they're loud, so loud, deafening. Uh, uh, to quote uh, Emily Blunt, and. Because my question was, how the hell does he record sound? Um, there's there's some stuff that they do do in post, but basically they do a take with IMAX, and then when they get it, they do a wild sound take. Everybody's in the same room. Everybody's everybody's just the camera's not on, and they do the wild sound take, and they use that. Um, they sync it. And they sync it. And I'm sure there's, there's, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that's why I want to talk to the dialogue editor because I'm sure he's like tearing his hair up trying to make sure everything works. But, oh my but the thing is, you know, why wait till six months from now when the actor is like in a whole other world, probably doing another part and bring him in, yeah, put headphones yeah, on, yeah. put him in a studio and then try and get him to match? Like, what's the point of that? Why not just record it here? They know the cadence of what they said. They're in the moment. They're 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 like they're giving the they're still giving the performance. You have the the sound of you know you have the ambience of of that set. Everybody's doing the things they're supposed to be doing in the scene, um, mm -hmm. and it's like yeah, of course, of course. Um, you know, it's like like why wouldn't you do that? Like that makes perfect sense. And yeah, sure. If it if it doesn't work, like it's all just screwy. Oh, fine, like bring them in for an ADR session. Like you can always, you always have that option. But you're time. right, ADR is almost done like eight to twelve months later, and no one remembers the impulse in the scene, and it's they don't remember the cadence, and they're matching their lips, and it's about as it's about as far away from being like production tuned. And and so many films you need to be. It's a problem on so many films. You know, there's so, like there are so many filmmakers I love, but who ADR so much that their films often like flop. 
And I mean, yeah. one director who ADRs a ton is um, John Borman. Uh, and John Borman hmm. is... Oh, yeah. And John yeah, Borman's a filmmaker yeah. who, who likes to like, go out into the wilderness. I mean, not anymore. He's like 100 years old now. I don't know if he's making any more movies. But, you know, like in his heyday, like he loved, you know, going out into like natural locations, real locations. I mean, this is the guy who did Deliverance. He did Excalibur. He did The Emerald Forest. Like he was really. I love Excalibur. I love, I mean, I love, I love both all those movies. movies. But whole, um, yeah. And, I, you know, or, or Beyond Rangoon, like a film like Beyond Rangoon, which is a beautiful movie. But the whole thing has been ADR'd, and like whenever someone speaks, it sounds really awkward. And it sounds really, and I, awkward. and I love that movie. Uh, but like, I can tell why people think it's a dud because, you know, Patricia Arquette speaks. Well, the body, the voices are disembodied. Voices. You know, it only, it only certainly. We've gotten so far from Tenet, yeah. but the only it makes me think about Bellatar films where they've literally re, re ADR everything. But the alien slow nature of those movies. Yeah. It doesn't bother you. You feel that in the in the pace. And I'm, you know, look, Italian cinema is my favorite cinema in the world. Um, and I mean, it's, it was the cinema that I became obsessed with that made me a cinephile. And the Italians, I mean, for most of the 20th century, were were post synchronizing everything. They were dubbing everything. And and that's like, mm-hmm. if you're gonna dub, do it the way they do. Dub everything. Yeah. Dub everything. Yeah. Don't even. Make it a part of the performance as opposed to uh, an Let act. the actors know it's all going to be dubbed because then you get what you get in Italian cinema, which is the um, which is almost silent acting. Like you get, you know, you, you mm-hmm. get actors bringing their physicality into the performances in a way that they wouldn't if there was a kind of a more naturalistic production. Um, so as a result, Italian cinema becomes this whole other thing. And it's like, just just go for it. Just dub everything. You know, Sergio Leone dubbed. It's all dubbed. <laughs> it's okay. You know, like if everybody's if everybody's on the same page and everybody's dubbing, that's fine. But if you're like kind of dubbing or you know making people give these performances and then like you know then you go back and dub like half the movie, that's going to be a problem. Well, one person that doesn't do that is Christopher <laughs> Nolan. And this was great, Bilga. Thanks so much for Thank hanging you. out and talking about ten. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it ten Absolutely. more times, please. Absolutely, ten, ten, cool. net. Yeah, 10, 10, 10. Or the nine pieces 10, of the algorithm. 10, yeah. Or or whatever. I've got somebody big money. So when you're raising your boy, carry this. There may be a time and place you feel threatened. Hit talk, state your location, hang up. Who gets the message? Posterity. Thanks for listening, everybody, to Bilga and I Go On About Tenet, a great movie that if you haven't seen, I'm amazed you got this far into the show. Uh, maybe we'll come back and do more episodes about Tenet with Bilga and with some other people because it's so much fun to talk about, and I feel like people that love it really love it. Um, this feed hosts a podcast called Oeuvre Busters that uh, I used to host with my buddy George Fragopoulos. Hi, George. As well as a series called Romerecast, which is a podcast about Eric Romero that I do with my buddy Sean Senevaratnes. So if you enjoyed this conversation, you should kind of scroll back and check that stuff out because there's lots of fun, cool things to listen to in there. Uh, Whatever I want to do on this feed, I've kind of been doing and it's been a lot of fun, so I hope you stick around. Bye-bye. Cells 12, hidden from the world is a sea where anything can happen.